So if I say to you, who is the greatest singer or band of all time, what do you say? You can say it out loud, it's okay. Carlos doing it a little bit, all right. If I say to you, who is the greatest, this will be even more controversial. If I say to you, who's the greatest president of all time, who would you personally say? Well, we might get a little consensus on Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. Uh, I'm glad nobody's saying, like, Millard Fillmore in here or some oddball president. Uh, I'm from Georgia. The only president that we've ever had come out of Georgia is arguably one of the worst presidents of all time as far as during his term. That's what I've always been told. But he's a really nice man But from about an hour from where I'm from. If I said to you, who's the greatest movie character of all time, who would you say? Uh, a couple of you are thinking about it. If I say to you, who is the greatest football player of all time, who would you say? <laughs> who would you say, Jamie? I know you wouldn't say Tom Brady. Herschel Walker. Yeah, there's a, the Bills fans are uh, sitting quiet or naming someone other than Tom Brady. I'm sad Carson's not here today because he would definitely say Tom Brady very loudly. If you ask most college basketball uh, fans or people who are knowledgeable of the sport who the greatest coach of all time was, they would hands down say John Wooden. Now, I've grown up watching Coach K be the coach at Duke, and he is, without a doubt, a legend. He's won the most games ever. Uh, the program at Duke is fantastic. He wrote a book of several years ago called Leading with the Heart. It's a great book on leadership, but even Coach K would say that John Wooden is the greatest coach of all time. So uh, Renee and I were talking the other day, and he was like, man, I'm excited this old guy's coming to our church. I was like, the old guy died 10 years ago, so <laughs> let me give you a bit of a bio on this guy just for your information if I, if I can. So John Wooden was born on October 14, 1910 in Martinsville, Indiana. He had farming parents. And so his upbringing was doing two things, one, farming, and two, playing basketball, which was still a really early sport at the time in Centerton, Indiana. When he was 15 years old, he met this woman, Nellie Riley. They began to fall in love. Seven years later, they would be married, and they were married until her death in 1995. So for 63 years, these people were married. He coached um, high school, or excuse me, when he was in college, he went to Purdue University, Three times he was an All-American. One time he was the College Basketball Player of the Year. And then his team won the national championship one time. He's one of the, he was the first man ever inducted into the College Basketball Hall of Fame as a player and then later as a coach. After he finished college basketball, he had a chance to go pro, but he just didn't think there was a living in that at the time in the early 30s. So he became a high school basketball teacher. In his first year ever uh, as a high school teacher, they went, his basketball team went 6-11. and 11. He coached for another 44 years, I believe, and never had another losing season, which is pretty incredible. So he coached at three high schools, and then while he was doing that, he created this thing called the Pyramid of Success. I believe we may have a slide up of that pyramid. And he just, for a few years, crafted this thing and worked on it and worked on it. And, uh, and this became uh, how he his coaching philosophy and what he walked through with his players. And he was offered a job in 1948. He was offered two college coaching jobs. One was at Minnesota. It was a really good college coaching job. The other one was at UCLA. And he kind of just did what a lot of us had done. He said, God, whichever door opens first and clearest, that's the one that I'm going to take. And so when Minnesota was calling him, to, was going to call him to offer him the job, the day of, there was this tremendous snowstorm in Minnesota. Everything died. 
including the phone lines, and they never called, and UCLA called, and it was a less desirable job across the country away from everything he'd ever known, but they were the ones who called, and so he accepted that job. He, uh, he moved in 1948. It took 16 years for UCLA to win their first national championship. It took him a long time to win his first. But then once he won his first, the UCLA Bruins basketball team won the national title for college basketball in 64, 65. They took a year off. Then they won it 67, 68, 69, 70, 71, 72, 73, seven in a row. No one's ever done that before or since. They didn't win it in 74, and then they won it in 75. His men's basketball team won 88 games in a row in the early 1970s. That was a feat that was just matched a few years ago by the UConn uh, women's basketball team, who I believe surpassed it. And then he won 10 national championships in 28 years. Actually won 10 in a 12-year span. He was this old guy coaching young men in the Vietnam era where you had guys had long hair and were kind of rebels. He coached Bill Walton, who followed the Grateful Dead. And he told the guys, you cut your hair, no facial hair. Your first practice of the year was spent just learning to do two things. One, put your socks on correctly. Two, lace your shoes correctly. That was the entire first practice. He was a master of, being, of paying attention to details. But that's not why I love this guy and why I think we need to give five weeks to talking about some of the things he was about. He saw himself always as a teacher and a coach. He was a model husband, uh, father, coach, employee, and man of God before he died in 2010 at the age of 99. Uh, a sweet old man. One of my dear friends in South Carolina got to know him and just said he was the real deal. Coach Wooden once said, and I love this quote, if I were ever prosecuted for my religion, I truly hope there would be enough evidence to convict me. That's a great statement. If I were ever prosecuted for my faith, I truly hope there would be enough evidence to convict me. And he created this thing called the pyramid of success. And that's going to be our sermon series over the next few weeks because everything that he created in this pyramid of success was not some idea that was original to him. It actually was all ideas that are rooted in scripture. And one thing I love about Coach Coleman here at Charlestown High, he tells every guy that ever walks even out for tryout, he says, guys, I have three goals for you. One, I want you to be a good man. Now he can't say it in the public school sector, but he said it here at our church before. He actually wants them to be godly men. But he has to be careful and let his life and how he follows Jesus lead the way on that rather than him thumping them with a the Bible. Though sometimes you probably would like to thump them with a the Bible, I imagine, right? Uh, two, he says, I want you to be a good student. And then three, I want you to be a good athlete. That's rooted in a biblical worldview for those young men. And that's what Coach Wooden uh, was doing. And so all of his principles were actually talked about by Paul and Jesus and Peter and even in the Psalms two and 3,000 years before. So let me ask you, and then we'll jump into the scripture. What teams are you part of? All right, first of all, how many of you like sports? How many of you do not care about sports? All right, it's a couple of non-sports people. Love it. Um, the last church we started was for artists, and whenever I would share a sports metaphor, Carla, they would all rate, they would roll their eyes. They'd be like, oh, sports. Yay, sports. Like, they hate the go sports ball. That's what they would always just yell at me. So what teams, not actual teams, what teams are you part of? Are you part of a team, like your family's a team? Your workplace is a team? Uh, maybe your circle of friends operates almost on some level like a team? What are the strengths and weaknesses of the teams that you find yourself currently on? What, is your te- what do your teams do well? What do your teams do poorly? I was talking with someone this week. They were saying, my boss cannot do conflict. 
And so rather than address a conflict immediately, it just simmers and stews and simmers and stews until somebody quits or somebody gets fired or everything goes nuclear. That was a weakness in that person's team. I've seen other teams where the person, like the coach or the, the people on the team are just amazing at encouraging and drawing the best out of other people. What teams are you part of? And what do you bring to the teams that you're part of? What do you bring to the teams? And let me just ask one last question. We're going to jump right into the scripture. Do you consider, and this is appropriate for the luncheon we're going to have in a month, do you consider yourself part of this team? Team Jesus and Team Christ Church Charlestown. And that's really important because a lot of people, the era we live in right now, people want to feel a part of something. They just don't necessarily want to contribute to something. Everybody wants to win, just not always do people want to do the work that is required for winning. We see, I, I guarantee you, like high school coaches see this, where I want to win, I just don't want to put in the work to win. I coach a, a, ba- a basketball team for Noah's age, like 10, 11, and 12, and 13-year-olds, and I want to pull my hair out every week. I'm like, listen to me talk to you. Quit talking while I am coaching you. If you're a better coach than me, which I doubt, you do this, but you're not. So be quiet, 12-year-old. I'm talking right now. They want to win so bad, but they want to do their things that are causing losing. I'm like, if you will do it my way, you have a better chance of winning. Uh, And so God has put us on teams, including the church, and he would have us bring something to it. So the first building block, building block number one, is industriousness. You see it down here, and that's the first one we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at Colossians 3, 23 and 24, and uh, in Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, Two verses, and then I'm going to define uh, industriousness as Coach Wooden does, and then we'll move forward with just a couple of points from it. Uh, Paul writing to the Colossians says this in, in Colossians 3, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Whatever you do, work at it heartily. Man, I think about that uh, when nobody is watching me do my job and be a husband and be a dad. Whatever you do, work at it heartily as if you are working for the Lord and not for people. Coach Wooden defined industriousness uh, this way. He said, there's no substitute for work. Worthwhile results come from hard work and careful planning. There's no substitute for work. There's not. There's not. Like, that's it. Worthwhile results come from hard work and careful planning. And so we see this in what Paul's saying. Uh, Scott, if you'll go to the slide that says maximum results. The next one? Yeah. Thank you. Here's the first thing we see in this uh, verse. And Coach Wooden's principle comes from these verses. Uh, Maximum results always come from maximum effort. The best results always come from the best effort. It doesn't mean that sometimes we don't get good results or even maximum results from good effort. Even sometimes, like, a broken clock is right twice a day, right? Like, sometimes we get good results when we give no effort because God is gracious and the things just kind of fall our way. But consistently, maximum effort uh, leads to maximum results. Paul said, whatever you do, work heartily. Work heartily. It's out of the soul, out of your gut, Out of your gut, he says, work from your gut, out of the soul. One thing that uh, I think Paul would say to us today, and Coach Wooden would say, is there's a difference between excellence and perfection. 
Paul is not calling the church to perfection. He's calling us to excellence. God does not demand perfection of us. He wants excellence from us. If God wanted perfection from us, he wouldn't have sent Jesus to die. The cross is evidence that we are not perfect and God knows it. And so when Paul says work heartily, Paul's not saying be perfect, be perfect. Even, and, and we may even think about the verse where it says be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus is not calling us to perfection. That word perfect just means mature. It means ripe, like a piece of fruit that's just ripe. We had an argument this week in my house about what the best fruit is. And my wife said it's peaches, a really ripe, good, not overripe, not underripe peach is the best fruit. There's nothing better than putting your, like, than biting into a peach that's just right. And when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, he's saying, be ripe, be mature, be all that you can be. God is not calling us to perfection He is calling us to excellence when there's a call to work heartily. Paul is speaking of relationships. Uh, In this context, if you look up to verse 18, it says rules for Christian households. He says, husbands, this is how you're to act towards your wives. Wives, this is how you're to act towards your husbands. Uh, Children, this is how you're to act towards your parents. Parents to children, uh, employees, even household slaves, uh, which is not like the you know, 17th, 18th, 19th century American slavery, uh, Roman Empire slavery was entirely different. It was more of a type of like bond service under a good, uh, uh, under a good like head of household typically. So he's talking about these things called the household codes. And he says uh, out of that, like, so when he gets to verse 23 and he says, whatever you do, work at it heartily, he's talking about relationships. Whatever we do, work at those relationships heartily. He's also talking about hard work. And he's even writing to Christians and he's saying, whatever you do when you're together, this is being read from house church to house church. Whatever you do, work at it heartily as if you're working for God and not for people. Coach Wooden would say three things to this. One, he would say, I only have control over myself. I only have control over myself. You only have control over yourself. As much as I would like to like Jedi mind trick my children and people in traffic and uh, people uh, in line at Starbucks where I'm like, it is Starbucks. We all know what they have. Order your coffee. Why is this taking so long? I would love to Jedi mind trick them and be like, they want a black coffee, pike, ro- pike roast or whatever those roasts are called. Get out of here and let me order my coffee. Like as much as we would like to do that, I don't have control over those people. I do have control over myself and the effort that I put forth on the teams where God has placed me. Coach Wooden would say, I only compete against myself. My competition is not you. My competition is me and becoming the person that God made me to be. The same is true for you. And then Coach Wooden would say, uh, and he did say this exact quote, I want to be the best I can be and hard work is the only way to make this happen. In your relationships, in your workplace, wherever God has put you, are you currently giving your maximum effort on your teams? Are you giving maximum effort on your teams? Um, The Lord convicts me on this one. I have a wife who is amazing. We've been married for almost 16 years. Um, She is what you would call a low-maintenance wife, um, which is... A godsend because I am what you would probably call a high maintenance husband. 
at times. The other day she was saying, man, we're getting these new people in the church and they're serving and I just don't even know sometimes what I'm supposed to do anymore. And I was like, you're supposed to be my wife. Uh, your job is to be my wife. And if anybody else in our church ever starts emotionally doing your job, we have a real problem. So you just be my wife. I feel better and safer and more sane when you're here. My wife is just nicer than me and a better follower of Jesus than me. I'm so thankful for her. I talked to Rebecca by email this week, and she said, tell Natalie I said hello. Nobody ever says to Natalie, tell JD I said hello. There's a reason for that. She is awesome. She's incredible. As her husband, sometimes I can take her effort and her temperament for granted and coast. And that is not the definition of industriousness. In God's kingdom, there is no neutral with him or in any other relationship. We can't just throw it in neutral with God and with our relationships and think we're going to coast and then we're going to throw it in drive later. It's reverse or drive. Those are the only two uh, gears in God's kingdom. The second thing we see in this passage, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Scott, I think we have a slide for this. Uh, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Grace is God's gift to me. Industriousness or hard work is my gift back to God. We don't serve so that God will love us. We don't work in our relationships and at our workplace so that God will love us. We work as followers of Jesus from love. We work from love, not for love. Today is my Owen's birthday. He turned eight. It makes me feel like I'm getting older. I still think of him coming out that day. He weighed five pounds. They put they five pounds and something. Natalie can tell you how many ounces. Dads don't know that stuff usually. And they put him right there. His, his head was so small. It was smaller in my hand. I just I remember holding him. And today he is eight. And uh, I would never want my Owen or my Noah to ever think, boy, if I clean up my room, then my dad will love me. Or if I make good grades, then my parents will be pleased with me. I love them and am pleased with them. I hope that anything and everything they do flows out of confidence from that love. My dad left when I was two. My brother was four years younger than me. By the time my brother was born, my dad was already gone. Uh, And I remember once a week, it's like Thursday night, I had to go to my dad's house uh, because my mom worked three jobs. And, uh, and my dad would say, from a young age, he would say, you were super intense, like more intense than any six, seven, eight-year-old ever was. So if we were playing baseball, wiffle ball in the yard, and if I missed it, it like crushed me because I always felt like I was working for my dad's love. If I hit the ball, he would love me. If I missed the ball, he would be disappointed in me. That is not how the, how the God of the Bible operates. This is different than any other religion on planet earth, by the way. The God of the Bible, who we see revealed in the person of Jesus, loves us home run, single, or strikeout. And so we come up to bat, all the sports metaphors today, and the game of life, totally free, totally loved. That is grace seen at the cross. The cross is the good news that God in Christ gives us what we can never earn and can never deserve. Grace is God's good gift to us. Hard work then becomes one of our gifts 
back to him. It's an offering. When you get home from work, and some of you work so hard, when you get home and you plop down on the couch and your shoulders begin to relax, isn't that a good feeling? You're like, whew, and you know, I worked hard today. That's a gift. That's an offering back to God. Your service is to the Lord Jesus. Jesus' service to us was his life, death, resurrection, forgiveness, salvation, justification, sanctification, all these big Asian biblical words, mission, and eternity. Because of grace, Christian, your life and my life is not our own. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 tells us that. We become steward managers, stewards, managers of our life. We're called to steward all of our lives, time, money, abilities, experiences, relationships, character, influence. These are, we're to steward these things. We don't own them. It's so good to see Mallory today. I'm picking on you while you're looking at the ceiling. Uh, God, I, God had put Mallory on my mind this week and, uh, and really had been like, she had I, I'd just been thinking about her and praying for her. And so I reached out and texted her and just said, hey, Mal, hope you're doing well. Anyways, I can be praying for you. Love you. Hope your, hope your journey's going well. Nat and I love you so much. And she texted back and said, oh, JD, it's so great to hear from you. Vaskin had actually just been talking to me about church this week, so I've been kind of thinking about things. And um, really sorry I put you on the example without, like, asking you permission. I hope you'll forgive me, or we won't see you ever again. Uh, either way, I still have your number, and I'll text you to ask forgiveness forever. Um, that relationship that Mallory and Natalie and I have is not um, a gift to be taken lightly. She is a gift of God in our life. And we don't own that relationship. We manage that relationship. That's how all our relationships are. In all of our time, and all of our money, and all of our experiences, we're not owners. They, if we are in Christ, they're actually God's, and we give them back. Whatever you do, work heartily, working for the Lord and not for men. When you serve your kids or your teachers or your parents or your coworkers or your bosses or your spouse or your best friends or your neighbors, you are serving God. You are serving God. Even the most curmudgeon people ever, even the dumbest bosses ever, when we love them, we are serving God. It is, it is almost like men in black. Remember in Men in Black where you had the people with the human suits on, but they were actually aliens under there? Like, we are, in a way, serving Jesus underneath the skin of somebody else. Everybody who comes across our path, even the most unlovely and unlovable, when we love them, we are serving the Lord and not people. So are we giving God our very best? If you're a Christian, that bears witness to our faith. It, for all of us, Christian or not, reflects God's character and how Jesus held nothing back. The third thing I think we see in the scripture, and this is the last sort of point, and then we'll begin to bring this into the barn. God honors commitment, hard work, and effort. God honors commitment, hard work, and effort. We live in a generation where everyone gets a trophy. My kids play Little League Baseball here in Charlestown. There's 200-something kids who play it. It's my favorite youth sport maybe in America because in the Charlestown Little League, only the team that wins the championship gets the trophy. It's the greatest thing ever. Like the first year, my kids just assumed they were getting a trophy because it's America and the 21st century. And at the end of the night, they didn't get a trophy. Like they're calling up the championship team and they get a trophy. And our team had come in third place out of four. And Noah's thinking, 
oh, well, they're going to start with the champs first and work their way down. We're all getting a trophy. And then he's doing the math. And all the trophies are going off the table. And we leave and he starts crying. He's like, I didn't get a trophy. And we're like, yeah, because you didn't win the championship. It's fantastic. Like, we live in a world now where it seems everyone gets a trophy. In God's kingdom, believe it or not, we can all get in by salvation. Salvation is free for all. Jesus died for every single one, but he died for each one of us. We can all become part of his family. But on some level, and I haven't worked this way, this out in my theological studies, when we get to heaven, God is going to have some next level stuff for the people who have given everything and have been the most fruitful and have laid it all down for him. And that makes total sense. Because I'm 42, and if I, if God, let's say God gives me 84 years, and I spend the next 42 years living like a practical atheist, running from him, but I get into heaven because I trusted Jesus and became part of his family, it would be really stupid and presumptuous to believe that I'm going to spend the exact same eternity as Mother Teresa and Billy Graham and the people over the last 2,000 years who have given their life for God and the gospel. It's weird especially to me in our everyone gets a trophy generation, but it is biblical. And I haven't fleshed it all out. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know if we're going to get crowns or if we're going to get gold stickers. I haven't figured any of it out. But here's what I do know. Whatever we get, we're not going to have deserved it. Whether we get a lot of it or just a little bit of it, none of us is going to have earned it. It's all going to have been grace. And whatever we get, one of our first acts of worship is going to be to lay it at the feet of Jesus, and say it was all for you. It was not for us. And there is going to be delight watching it all be laid at his feet. But I don't think that Paul was crazy when he wrote, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And Jesus and Paul and Peter and John and the people who wrote the New Testament consistently talk about the idea that there is an inheritance, which is salvation in heaven, but there are also some rewards that believers are going to get. We will serve, we reflect God's glory when we work heartily. We are um, offering God what he has freely given us, and he will on some level reward it uh, at different levels. I haven't figured that out but I, tr- I choose to trust him. Nothing worth having ever came without hard work. Nothing worth having ever came without hard work. There was a guy in my high school, Mark Johnson. He was the number seven pick in the 1994 baseball draft uh, by the Oakland days, I believe. I remember the first day of tryouts. He was a junior. I was a freshman. We got to tryouts, and our coach, Coach Renault, says, guys, I know you have great dreams that you're going to be really good baseball players. He goes, I want to tell you, there's only one guy on this field who's going to make it in the majors. His name is Mark. And he pointed at him. It was so embarrassing. Like, not for Mark, for all of us. He goes, Mark has something none of you have. And I'm like, thinking this guy's so smart, whatever. And he says this. He goes, Mark, I'm not kidding. He goes, look at Mark's body. He goes, Mark has huge thighs and a big butt. He says, to play in the major leagues, you have to have big thighs and a big behind. And Mark has been blessed by the gods. He was like, but there's a second thing Mark has that most of you don't have. He said every day since he was, a, before he was a teenager, Mark hits 1,000 baseballs every afternoon. 1,000 baseballs. His hands were calloused as a 17-year-old guy. There was, 
because he, he swung every day a thousand baseballs. Nothing worth having ever came without hard work. Mark made it to the major leagues. I remember watching this guy uh, at my high school uh, by the time I was a senior playing in the major leagues. It was incredible. Nothing worth having ever came without hard work. When we work heartily, we reflect God's glory. We serve the Lord. We trust that God will honor our efforts at home, at work, and at church. Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, we have a coach. His name is Jesus. We have a playbook. It is called the Bible, the gospel. We have a game. It is life, but it's more than a game. There are players in the game, not fans. We were not meant to sit on the sidelines. There are too many followers of Jesus sitting on the sidelines. We have a mission, make disciples, win souls, see people switch teams. And we have an opponent, the devil, who would try to convince us that the game is not real and this is just life. And yet it is. It is a real game with real outcomes. I love the movie Hoosiers. It's probably, it came out in 1986, Gene Hackman. Uh, it's probably the movie I've seen the most. Does anybody like, do you guys like, do you like the Hoosiers? Nice. I love Hoosiers. I think it's the most elegant sports movie ever made. It's, it's beautiful. It's amazing. I've watched it probably a hundred times. I think I've cried uh, all but maybe once or twice. I think I, when I watch Hoosiers, if I don't cry, I count it. Like, I think it's happened twice. Um, it's a story of a 19, if you've never seen it, story of a 1954 Hickory, Indiana basketball team. It's based on a true story, little tiny school, and they end up winning the state championship. There's a great scene in the movie where the minister, there's a minister, and he's got a kid on the team, and the kid rarely gets in the game. And they're in the middle of a timeout in a very serious game, and the, and the minister's son, the strap, has got to go into the game. And they're all in the, they're all in the huddle. And coaches, like, giving them the instruction, they're going to put their hands in, and they sort of, you know, go team or whatever, and they go on the court, and there you see Strap on his knee, and he's praying, and you know he's praying, because he's always praying, this one kid's always praying, and, and he needs to be on the court, because the game's about to start, and the coach uh, sort of says, Strap, the Lord needs you on the floor. And the kid looks up with this steely determination. He goes out and he scores two or three baskets. That's a really powerful scene. And man, I want to tell us, the Lord wants us out on the floor, not sitting on the sideline. Not sitting on the sideline. The Lord wants you on the floor. So here are three questions in closing. One, are you on God's team? Are you part of his family? Are you on God's team? Two, are you in the game? Are you on the floor, on the court? in the game, engaged in what God's doing? Are you sitting on the sideline currently? And three, are you, where God has put you, are you giving God maximum effort in faith, relationships, at work, at church, and on mission with him? It's been fun as your pastor the last couple of years. Owen asked us last night, how long has our church been going? We're like, well, two years and two months now. Uh, meeting on Sundays and it's been fun over the last two years to watch your faith come alive as you've begun to work heartily not just on Sundays but in all things surrendering all things to God it's been powerful to watch you learn theology to watch you give your life to Jesus to watch you take steps of faith it's been amazing to watch you surrender all things to Lord. nothing worth having ever came without maximum effort